Welcome to New Life Assembly of God Media Ministry. We are glad that you are here. We believe the Word of God is relevant and life-changing, and we hope you can be blessed by this message. If you'll take your scriptures in hand, turn with me to 2 Timothy 2.15, and I hope you started your 21-day Easter devotional journey. Uh, if not, jump on uh, version and download the boxed-in devotional. We've been announcing it on the past two Sundays, and it's a 21-day devotional preparing our hearts for Easter. So uh, be sure and join together with us as a church family as we do that. The Word of God is so important to our lives, and that's what this series is about. This series is about how to study the Bible and we're going to be uh, looking at 2 Timothy 2.15, and uh, tonight's message is titled, Learning How to Study the Bible, and we're going to give you some practical uh, guidelines for actually how to study the Bible. But I read a headline in the Christian Post on February 17th, 2020, and it read, Iranian Christian convert fears execution if deported for giving wrong answers on Bible quiz. And, and that's what it actually said. How does something like that happen? Well, Reza Karka, a 38-year-old former Muslim, became a Christian while living in Iran, and it was a criminal offense there, and it was punishable by death. For that reason, he fled to the United Kingdom, and he sought asylum as a, a, a refugee. An immigration hearing was scheduled to determine if Mr. Karka's claim of conversion was truly valid. At that hearing, a judge gave him a test of 150 Bible questions. The judge's reasoning was that if Karka was truly a Christian, he should have a certain knowledge of the Bible and be able to pass the test. And if he doesn't pass, then the judge said he's faking it on the pretext of immigration to get his papers in the United Kingdom. So some of the questions on this test included his favorite passage from the Bible. He had to be able to quote it. The name of the betrayer of Jesus, we all know that, Judas, and the denomination into which he was baptized. And so those are just some of the questions. But he was unable to answer several of the questions correctly. So his application was rejected as the judge was not convinced that he was a true Christian. And so uh, last report, his case was still a pending, uh, pending uh, an appeal, but he was in jeopardy of being deported back to Iran, which could cost him his life. Now, this story sounds surreal, but it actually happened. Could you be, imagine being in such a position? How hard would you study the Bible if you knew that your life literally depended on it. Well, that's exactly how we should study the Bible, because our life here on earth and for eternity depends on it. And we all one day will stand before a different judge. We'll stand before the Lord as our judge, to be judged not only about our knowledge of his word, but about how well we lived his word. For this reason, 2 Timothy 2.15 urges us, saying, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or interpreting the word of truth. And the word 
approved, that is used in this verse, in Greek, means pleasing or acceptable. So we have to study in order to, to live a life that is pleasing or acceptable unto God. Paul reiterates this in Romans 12.1, where he says, Brethren, I plead with you according to the mercies of God that you would present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's talking about offering our lives to God as a living sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God, which he says is the true worship that God desires. So true worship is not just about attending a church service or about singing songs or raising our hands or saying amen to the sermon, but it's about living lives, the entirety of our lives, in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to God. And Paul tells us the only way we can live a life that is pleasing to God is if we study God's word. We have to know how God wants us to live if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to him. And it depends on how diligent of a student of God's word we are, learning not only the truths of his word, but learning to live it out. Pleasing God is not an individual matter. It's not about what we feel or think is pleasing to God. It's not about how we think we should live our lives. You know, a lot of people today, that's their view. That Well, this is how, what I feel God wants me to do. Yeah, but what does the Bible say? Because that is the final authority. It is about what God has said in his word, about how he expects us to live. It's about obedience to his word out of the love and gratitude for all all that he has done for us. So I'm not talking about a, a heavy burden of dutiful obedience, but I'm talking about a heart of love that says, God, you have done so much for me. I just want to offer you my life and live my life in a way that is pleasing unto you. But in order to do that, we need to rightly interpret or understand his word. So as Christians, we are called to be lifelong students of God's word, putting forth diligent effort, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, to study the Bible so we can rightly interpret it and apply it to our lives. Now, today, and in the times in which we live, it's a time of sermon tweet points. And actually, I was reading an article on, on preaching today in contemporary society, and they say you're supposed to work into your sermon tweet points. You know, certain catchy sayings that people will want to post on social media. You know, God is not concerned about what we post on social media, even though, you know, if, if God speaks to you something good in the sermon, you know, by all means, post it. But we should be more concerned about hearing from God and letting God change. My, and as a pastor, I should be more concerned about hearing the message from God and rightly interpreting and applying his word than coming up with some catchy statement so that everybody can tweet it on, on, uh, online. Uh, uh, to today, nowadays, we have not only tweet points, we have scripture verse memes. And we have five-minute devotions. And because of that, because people are living on tweets, memes, and five-minute devotions, many Christians don't know how to study the Bible. That is the extent of their exposure to the Bible. 
So today, we want to talk about a basic approach to study God's Word that anyone at any stage in their Christian walk can use, and it's called the inductive Bible study method, and it's one of the easiest and one of the best Bible study methods, and it involves three distinct elements. Observation. What is the Bible saying? What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? and application. What does it mean for me? How am I supposed to live it out? So these three elements really, they are progressive. They build on one another, meaning that we always have to begin with observation. What is the Bible saying? Move to interpretation, what does it mean? And then to application, what does it mean for me? How do I live it out? Now before we enter into the practice of Bible study, we should always begin with prayer. Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to lead us into all truth and to take what he was saying and make it known to us. And Paul said that spiritual truths cannot be understood with the natural mind. They need to be spiritually discerned. And, and it is the Holy Spirit that explains spiritual truth to us, that touches us and enables us to understand. It enlightens us so that we can understand spiritual truth. So always approach Bible study by first praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and asking the Lord to open our hearts and our minds to be able to hear and understand what he is saying to us. So when you, when you open that way, then you're not going about Bible study alone. You have a teacher with you. You have the Holy Spirit. So after you've opened your heart to the Spirit through prayer, then open your Bible and start with step one, observation. What does this passage say? Before we can understand what a passage means, we must know what it says. So you need to read and reread and reflect on the passage. I love crime dramas. N NCIS, FBI, Law and Order, I love crime dramas. And when they investigate a crime scene, they look at every detail for clues. And they're asking questions of what they are seeing. Why is the weapon here? Why is the body positioned there? Why is the blood spatter in this particular? They're asking questions of the crime scene. And it's a slow process as they seek to find the truth of what happened. And that's how we need to go about studying the Bible. Maybe my love for studying the Bible is why I love crime scene dramas so much. I don't know. But that's how we have to go about studying the Bible in the observation stage. We have to look at the details. You know, sometimes after I've preached a message, people comment, Pastor, how did you get all of that out of one verse? It starts with this step of observation, looking at all the details in that verse. We need to read the, the passage several times, sometimes read it in other versions. That sometimes gives you a little bit of a different perspective. Become very familiar with the passage that you're reading. And then ask questions of the passage. Investigate it, gather all sorts of information like a crime scene investigator. Some of you might remember, I've seen it in reruns, not the original, but some of you might remember the old TV cop show, Dragnet. Anybody remember that? 
the main cap character was Joe Friday. And he had a trademark saying when he was interviewing witnesses. He would say, just the facts, man, just the facts. And, and, and he meant he wasn't interested in, in their feelings or their opinions or their suppositions. All he wanted was the factual evidence, all right? In this stage of Bible study, all we want is the facts, just the facts. And we get to the facts by asking questions of the passage. What are those questions? Who, what, where, why, and when? Those are the four classic questions questions of a reporter, <laughs> but they're also the classic questions of studying the Bible. Who? What is the who we're concerned about? Who is writing? Who is writing? What are their circumstances when they're writing? For instance, Philippians. The theme of the book of Philippians is rejoicing in all circumstances. And we find that Paul is writing it while he is in prison facing a death sentence. And yet he says, don't feel sorry for me, rejoice. I'm getting an opportunity to preach the gospel to the entire Roman palace. And then in chapter four, he goes into that classic passage, rejoice in the Lord always and again, I say rejoice. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, let your requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your heart and mind. And he talks about how I've learned to be content in all situations, whether I have a lot, whether I have nothing. Why? Because Christ strengthens me. Christ strengthens me, and through Christ I can do all things. So here is this man writing this letter about joy, and he is in the worst of circumstances. If anybody would have a reason to complain, it should be Paul. But he's rejoicing, and he's encouraging us to rejoice. So knowing who is writing and the circumstances in which they are helps us to have a deeper understanding of what is being said. We also want to ask, who was the message originally addressed to. And so, for instance, when Paul is writing the letter of Philippians, he's writing to a Philippian church that has become discouraged because of persecution, and particularly because of their beloved leader being imprisoned and facing a death sentence. And they're thinking, if that can happen to such a good man of God, where does that leave us? You know, so that's why he's writing to them to, to, to encourage them to rejoice and to see their sufferings from a different perspective. So understanding who he's writing to also helps us to get a, a deeper understanding. We also want to say who is involved in this passage. You know, sometimes different people will be mentioned in the passage, and we want to know who they are and what the circumstances uh, surrounding them are. So who's writing, who's the message addressed to, and who's mentioned in the passage? Second question is what? What was happening? What was the reason or occasion for the writing? What's, what's said? Is it a command? Is it a rebuke? Is it a question? Is it an answer? Is it a prayer? Is it an exhortation? What's being said? What's the main point? For instance, when Paul addresses the issue of meat being offered to idols, the main point is that as Christians, we need to love one another and we need to be careful not to do things that may cause someone else to stumble, even if in our mind we think those things are okay. So I'll give you a for instance. I know that wearing slacks is not a sin before God, right? But there are certain churches where I am invited to speak that I know that's a big no-no for them. 
They think if, you're, if a woman wears slacks, she's on a banana peel to hell, okay? So guess what? If I go there to preach, I'm going to wear a dress because I don't want to stumble somebody and block them from hearing the message that I'm bringing. So out of love for them, I'm going to comply with their understanding because as Paul says, some people may not be um, as, as mature in their understanding as others. And so we need to take that into consideration and we need to walk in love to one another. We can't just say, well, this is the way that I am. You know, I, I, saw, <laughs> I saw a post on Facebook the other day and they were talking about how the particular cultural background that they come from is very blunt and that they just say things without any flowers, they just say it to the point. And how, um, you know, a lot of people get offended with them for that. But, hey, that's my culture. And this is a Christian writing this. And they're like, hey, but that's my culture and that's the way we are. But you know what? As Christians, we can't take that attitude. If something that we are doing is causing offense to someone else out of love, we have to consider them and we have to say, Lord, help me to conduct myself in such a way that it's not going to cause offense or cause somebody to stumble, all right? So that whole thing about meat being offered to idols, for us, is it, it, we have to understand it in its original context. And in its original context, it was a very pagan environment, lots of idolatry, and they used to, to take um, sacrifices to these idolatrous temples, and they would offer them to these false gods. And then they would come, and I saw this for real when I was in Asia, because they had a lot of uh, these uh, uh, Hindu, uh, not Hindu, um, Buddha, temples to Buddha. And they brought in all of these food offerings. Meanwhile, the people in many of these countries are starving. But they would bring in all these food offerings, and then at the end of the day, you would see the Buddhist monk with these big bags, and they're taking the food home with them. But in ancient times, in biblical times, they would come in, and they would clear the altars, and they would take them to the marketplace. And they would sell that meat at a discounted rate. And a lot of the people were poor. So that's all that they could afford, especially the Christians who had begun to be persecuted and many of them lost business and what have you. But for some Christians who had just come out of idolatry and knew that this meat had been offered to idols, it was a great offense then for a Christian to buy that meat and eat it. It, it, it was as though they were participating somehow in the worship of these idols. So it, it offended their conscience. So Paul is saying, you know what, we know that there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. But if it's gonna cause a new Christian to stumble, then guess what? Out of love for them, don't eat that meat, you know? Well, nowadays, we don't deal with, you know, meat being offered to idols, you know? I mean, I know sometimes in, in uh, Miami, you know, they have to clean sacrifices from voodoo off of the, <laughs> the, the, the stairs of the courthouse and in different cemeteries and everything, but they don't go and sell it in the market, so it's not an issue we have to deal with. But when we understand it in its original context, then we can find the meaning of it and how it applies to us today. And so the meaning is we need to walk in love to one another. We can't just dismiss when our actions or behaviors are offending someone else. We have to give consideration to that and avoid, if at all possible, offending someone else. And it helps us to understand that by understanding the original meaning of the passage. Are you following me? Okay, we also need to ask what keywords or phrases are being used. For instance, John 
uses the, the contrasts of light and darkness throughout his writings, you know? And so look at that and, 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 and focus on that and say, what is he speaking about? What does he mean? Uh, write down key words and their meanings. For instance, the word apostle, you know? Um, it means one sent on a mission. Or the word disciple, it speaks about a learner, a student, a follower. So uh, uh, an illustration of that, Mark 3, 14, where Jesus prayed all night and he called 12 from among his followers, from among his disciples, that they might be with him so that he might send them forth. So he called 12 from among his disciples in order to send them forth or make them apostles. And that's what he wants to do with each of us. We all start by being his followers, but his goal is that as we are with him, as we spend time with him, we will be equipped to be sent forth as his apostles. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not in the technical term of having a specific title or function in the Bible, but as being his sent ones into the world, all right? So understanding those words can help us understand uh, the meaning. You also need to ask what literally, literary style is being used. How many of you know that you don't read a history book the same way that you read a poem, right? It, it's different, it's a different type of literature, and there's different types of literature or genres of literature in the Bible. There is the narrative or the historical, you know, that are giving you the facts, there's theology in it, but, but, but they're narrating facts or history. And in the narrating of that history, they're telling us about how God deals with man and how God intervenes in our situation. But you're going to read that differently than you would read Psalms, because Psalms is a songbook. It's a book of poetry. So you read that differently than you would read the Exodus which is more of a historical uh, narrative there. Or, or you have to ask, is it prophetic? Because prophetic books, they use a lot of symbolic or figurative language that you cannot interpret literally as you would a historical narrative. You know, so uh, you're reading the book of Revelations and, and you're reading about these big monsters that have a sting in their tail and, and they fly and, you know, he's not describing an actual flying monster with a sting in its tail because he's looking thousands of years into the future to the end times. But he could be describing some kind of aircraft that has some type of weaponry that fires on people. And that's the sting that he sees, you know? But he has no context for that, and so uh, the Spirit inspires him to use this figurative language in order to describe what he's seeing. So is it prophetic? Is it a parable? You know, a parable uses kind of like an everyday scenario in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. So Jesus might be standing there in the field and there's somebody sowing seed because it was an agricultural society. There's somebody sowing seed in the background. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who goes forth and sows seed. And some of the seed falls on, on hard ground and some of the field, uh, seed falls on rocky ground and some of the seed falls on thorny ground and some of the seed falls on, on good soil, you know. And, and what is he saying? Well, he's saying, you know what? The word of God is like a seed. And when the sower goes out, he scatters the seed and it falls on different kinds of hearts. Some hearts are hard and they, they don't have any opening to receive the seed at all. Some hearts, they're rocky. And so the seed gets planted, but it springs up and it doesn't have any depths of root, so it withers very quickly. 
and some falls on thorny ground. It springs up, but the thorns are weeds that come in and choke out, and, and Jesus said that's the cares of this life. They're more concerned about the concerns of this life, and it chokes out their spiritual desire. But then there's that seed that falls on the good ground and it grows, and it brings forth fruit. So he's talking about the different conditions of man's heart and how the seed of God's word planted in the heart brings forth different results depending on the condition of the human heart. So is it a parable? Is it a letter? You know, the epistles were letters written to specific people or churches, usually for a specific reason or purpose. And when you find out what that reason or purpose is, it unlocks the meaning of that letter for you. Or is it a sermon? There's certain passages of scripture, like the Sermon on the Mount. Or in Acts 7, uh, we have Stephen's sermon to the, uh, to the Jewish leaders that were about to kill him. Is it a sermon? What is he saying? What is the content of that sermon? All right, so that's the question, what? Then you ask the question, when? When was it written? Are there any references to historical details? Are there words that are related to the past, to the present, or the future? You know, for, for instance, in Revelations, uh, 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 John writes that the Holy Spirit is telling him the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are yet to come. And that really is the outline of the book of Revelations, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are yet to come. So is it talking about something past? Is it talking about something present? Is it talking about something future? And then you ask the question, where? Are there any significant locations that are mentioned? Towns, roads, mountains, rivers, deserts, countries. What is significant about that location and how does it tie in to what is being said? Then you ask the question, why? Why was this being written? Are there any clues indicating why things are being said or things are being done? And these questions can help us to analyze the details to, to discern the verse, what the verse or the passage is actually saying. And write down your observations either by hand or you can take notes on a computer. I type very fast, so I prefer to do mine on the computer and then that way I can read it back afterward because sometimes when I'm writing afterward, I'm looking at it and I'm like, what did I say? <laughs> so it's a lot better when I type it. But write down your observations. And after we know what the passage originally said, we have to start with what the passage originally said. Then we can move to the next step. And that's interpretation. What does the passage mean? What did God mean by what he was saying? We tend to jump to what the passage means for us, and we bypass these first steps. And that's how sometimes um, we can go awry and, and believe something falsely. Remember, I said it last week, the Bible has only one interpretation, but it has many applications. But we have to start with the right interpretation in order to rightly apply it to our lives. What do I mean by that? I read a story about a couple that got married based on a sermon that a pastor preached on the conquest of Jericho. And you might remember the story where God instructed uh, Joshua that he was to have the people to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, they were to march around seven times and then the walls came falling down. So the pastor was preaching uh, uh, his sermon and he taught 
that, you know, the same way that God's people claimed the city by marching around it seven times and the walls fell down, that if a man believes that God wants him to marry a particular single young lady, he could walk around her seven times and the walls of her heart would fall down and she would be his. And as a result, this couple apparently did that and they got married and it didn't work out too well. So something obviously went awry in the interpretation stage that led this pastor to make such a misleading application of the passage. Of everything that we can learn from the conquest of Jericho, we can learn about faith, we can learn about obedience, we can learn about how God fights our battle. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from Jericho, right? But one lesson that is not taught is anything to do with marriage, all right? That's why we need to study what the Bible originally said and what it originally meant before we make application of it. So as the interpret at the interpretation stage, we need to search for that one meaning of the passage. What was God's original message? What was that author's original message? And start with the plain truth. The golden rule of interpretation is if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or it will turn to nonsense, all right? They have a principle in medicine that says, if you hear hoofbeats, think horse, not zebra. Why? Because horses are a lot more common than zebras. You know, so they're saying, you know, if, when you're looking at a patient trying to figure out what's wrong with them, go for the simpler before you start thinking about something really strange and rare out there. And that's the same in, in regard to interpreting the Bible. We need to start with the plain and obvious meaning. If, if it makes sense in the plain meaning, then we don't need to look for anything further. For instance, love your neighbor as yourself. Hello, that's plain. It's straightforward. You don't need to look for any deeper mystical meaning there. It says what it says, and it means what it says, all right? So don't go looking for some secret, mystical, or obscure meaning if the passage has a plain meaning. Secondly, seek a literal interpretation where possible. We always should try to understand the words of Scripture in their plain meaning as we use those words today. So when the Bible says Jesus was born of a virgin, guess what it means? Jesus was born of a virgin. That was literal, okay? When it says that he healed the blind, that he caused the lame to walk, and he raised the dead, that actually happened. That's literal. We don't have to look for some other meaning there. So start with the literal understanding of the words that are being used whenever that's possible. But always beware of figurative language, of metaphors, of symbols, of hyperboles, like... It's easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's, a, that's kind of a hyperbole, right? Kind of an exaggeration to make a point, you know? So you can't translate that literally and say, okay, we're going to try to get a camel through, you know, the eye of a needle. <laughs> and it wasn't actually talking about a sewing needle either. <laughs> Historically, there was a small gate in the walls of Jerusalem that were used on the Sabbath you know, they have the main gates where people could come in with their camels and their merchandise to sell and to trade, but that was not allowed on the Sabbath. So they closed the main gates and they had a small gate where only people could get through it and without a lot of baggage either. So if you wanted to get your camel into the city, 
you had to unload anything that was packaged on it, and the camel actually had to get down on its knees and crawl through this small gate that was referred to as the eye of a needle. So Jesus wasn't saying it's impossible for a rich person to be saved, because if you're thinking about a sewing needle, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle. (laughs) But it's not impossible for a camel to get through that small gate. It's just really hard. Okay, so he's saying, you know what? Rich people can get into the kingdom of God, but it's really hard because they tend to make money their God. Okay, so he's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's really hard. But understanding that historical context helps us to understand the meaning of the scripture. So always, you know, think about figures of speech and and what do they mean and what do they mean in their uh, original historical context, etc. For instance, another figure of speech, the psalmist says, the Lord is my rock. Obviously, God is not a stone. But a rock represents stability, security, and shelter, right? So a rock is something that's unchanging. And so, you know, God is that unchanging foundation on which we stand. When you look for the literal interpretation first, it makes Bible study a whole lot easier because we don't have to worry about some hidden meaning there, some mystical revelation that we're looking for. Then thirdly, as I was saying, consider the historical setting. And there's four reasons that it's important to consider the historical background of passage. First of all, times have changed. The Bible was written two to 3,000 years ago. How many think a few things have changed since then? All right, the way we do things, culture has changed, etc. okay? Places have changed. The Bible was predominantly written to a people living in Israel and Asia Minor. But today, it's written to people that are living all around the world. Thirdly, customs have changed. You know, the traditions, the customs that people practice have changed a lot, all right? Circumstances have changed. The way of life is different. You know, back then they walked everywhere. Nowadays here in the United States, we drive everywhere, you know? So a lot of things have changed. The way we dress has changed. You know, for instance, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm always taken aback when somebody who holds to that whole philosophy of, of a woman, you know, um, not wearing slacks, and they say, the Bible says that a woman should not wear a man's garment. And I always think to myself, do you remember what a man's garment was in the Bible? <laughs> it was a dress. It was a tunic. You know, so if we're going to hold to that literally, men should be wearing dresses today, you know. But, but that's why it's important to understand the changes in, in, in cultural context. But to interpret scripture correctly, we need to learn to think in two worlds. We need to think in the world of the past when the scripture was written. And we need to learn to think in the present and, and how do we bridge the two. All right. Before we can apply the Bible to our time, we need to understand what it meant to the people of that time. Before we can understand what a passage means for us, we must first understand what it meant for its original recipients. Then we can take the next step and say, okay, this is how it applies to us. All right, a fourth principle, consider the context. When you read a verse, don't try to interpret just that verse. Read the preceding verses and the following verses in the passage that you're studying. 
Because God didn't speak to us in verses. He spoke to us in books. And in a book, the Bible. So he doesn't want us just to lift a verse out and say it says X, Y, and Z. He wants us to understand it in its overall meaning. For instance, Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. And in the context of him being in prison and facing a death sentence, and in the context of him saying, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, whether I have plenty or I have nothing, because I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. And, and his, what he is saying is, whatever circumstances you face, God will give you the strength to face it, all right? But if you don't take it in its context, you just lift that verse out, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me, a, a, a person who is not paying attention to the context could misuse those words to do something crazy. They could climb up on a building and say, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me, so I'm going to jump, and he's going to enable me to do it. Or I can run out in the middle of I-95, and I can do all things through Jesus Christ, so no car's going to hit me because God's going to enable me to be saved. No, that's crazy. That's nuts. That's misinterpreting the Bible, okay? So you have to understand it in its context to be able to understand what it really means. God did not inspire the writers of Scripture to write singular verses. God was not interested in tweet points or memes. He didn't inspire them to write singular verses. He inspired them to write entire books within the context of a greater book, the Bible. So each word, each verse, each paragraph is a part of a greater whole. First that specific book and then the Bible. Without context, we may hear God's word but miss his message because we don't understand his flow of thought. There's an old saying that says, a text without a context may be a pretext. In other words, it may be a false message that has taken the place of the true message because we don't understand the overall setting in which it's being spoken. So interpret a verse within the immediate context of the surrounding passage and the overall book in which it's being written, and then in the context of the whole scripture. That's why it's important to study the whole scripture. I know we like to camp on certain books that we like, but we need to widen our study of scripture and study the whole scripture, even those wonderfully popular books in the Old Testament like Leviticus and Obadiah, you know, they have important truths in them for us, all right? And they help us to understand the scripture. Consider the interpretation of a particular passage in comparison to the rest of what scripture teaches. Since the Bible is one book, then no verse or passage can mean something that contradicts what is taught in any other passage of scripture. God is not going to say something in one verse and then say something that contradicts somewhere else. So for instance, a misinterpretation of certain verses <clears throat> that says women should not preach or women should not lead. Okay, It's a misinterpretation because it, contra it contradicts other portions of scripture. For instance, God raised up Deborah in the Old Testament to be the leader of the entire nation of Israel. And she was the prophet 
the preacher of Israel, from which the male leadership of Israel came and sought counsel and guidance from her. So if God is saying in certain passages in the New Testament, women shouldn't lead or preach, did God make a mistake back in the Old Testament, raising up Deborah? No. So then obviously the way that we're interpreting certain passages in the New Testament are incorrect because God raised up Deborah. Are you following what I'm saying? You can't interpret one passage to mean something that contradicts what is being taught somewhere else in Scripture. All right? So you have to understand it in the overall context. Then you have to consider the grammatical structure of the sentence. You have to understand the relationship between the subject and the verbs. Who is acting? On whom are they acting? This is where all those grammar lessons that you took back in, and you said, I'll never use this again. It's important. You need to know what the subject of a sentence is, what the verb is, what the direct object is, what the object of a sentence is, because that helps you to interpret it. Who is acting? What are they doing? Who are they acting upon? You know, and that helps you to interpret. Uh, another principle, keep in mind the Christological focus of the Bible. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the main theme of the entire Bible. So as we read the Bible, we have to keep an eye out for references to him and, and, and know that we are going to encounter him on virtually every page of the Bible. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ. Jesus said, but when the Holy Spirit comes, when the helper comes, the spirit of truth, he will testify of me. He's going to lead you to me. He's going to show me to you, reveal me to you. One writer said it so aptly. He said, the Bible isn't about us. Sorry to break anybody's bubble. The Bible isn't about us. It's all about Jesus. And he said, we should approach Bible reading with a desire to find Jesus on every page, in every historical account, in every song, in every prayer, in every teaching, in everything. And that's how we'll come to know him better. So realize that Jesus is the main subject of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. All right. All right. Now we come to application. And this is usually where we jump to the moment we read a passage. And that's why sometimes we make the wrong application. This is the third step after we've done the observation, after we've done the interpretation. Now we come to application, and that's how does this passage or verse apply to me? The goal of Bible study is not about information, but transformation. It's not about just getting more knowledge about God or uh, uh, about Scripture. It's, it's about encountering God through his word and having our lives transformed. God calls us to not be hearers of the word only, but doers. Put it into practice. So if there's a command, if we're reading a passage and there's a command, guess what? Do it. If there's a warning, heed it. If there's a promise, believe it. All right? So what is this passage saying? Is it a command? Is it a warning? Is it a promise? Whatever it is, we need to have the appropriate response. That's application, okay? We, we recently finished a course in the Ministry Institute uh, that we have on Thursday night on the life of Christ, and someone who had recently started attending our church from another church said that they had been taught the Bible their whole life, but now feels like for the first time they're really getting to know Jesus. 
But that's what it's all about. It's all about deepening our walk with the Lord and having our life changed by him because Bible study should change our lives. Jesus prayed for all believers just before he died in what we call the high priestly prayer. And he said this when he prayed to the Father. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your, true, your word is truth. What does it mean to sanctify? It means to set apart from sin and from the world and to devote to God. This is a process of transformation that takes place in our life through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus is, is making this statement, when he's praying this prayer, he's talking about the transforming work of the word of God in our life. It should be sanctifying us, changing us. Amen. I remember, I've shared this before, but I remember when I first came to the Lord, my parents were not saved, and, and uh, my father, he had a hot temper, and, uh, and he spoke with, with cursing, you know, curse words a lot in English and in Arabic. So anybody asks me if I know Arabic, I say, oh, I know all the words I shouldn't know. But anyway, because <laughs> that's all I know in the foods. But anyway, um, from the time that we were children, we grew up with that. So we learned that as a way of communication, so we punctuated our sentences with curse words, all right? Then I got saved at the age of 11. And I just love Jesus and I'm called to the ministry and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And one day I'm reading the Bible and I start reading James chapter three. And it starts talking about how, you know, the tongue is a world of evil, you know, and who can tame it, you know, and if you can control the tongue, then you can control your whole life, you know. And then it goes on and it says, can a fountain bring forth both sweet water and bitter? And can a man praise God with his mouth and then curse his brother with that same mouth? And I read that verse, and wow, it was like a knife through my heart. The conviction of the Holy Spirit said, that's you. That's what you're doing. And I just came before the Lord, and I said, God, I confess that that's me, and I'm asking you to change me. And did it go away overnight? No, it was a process. But that process has brought me to the point that you won't hear a curse word come out of my mouth. If I hit my hand with a hammer, I'm going to say mercy because that's my catch-all word. Mercy, you know, for everything. But you won't hear a curse word come out of my mouth. That's how much God's word has sanctified me in that area. Later on, God started dealing with me about my temper because I also learned a bad temper from my father because most of our temper is learned, the way we react to frustrations. And I also learned that. And so later on, I'm 21 years old. I had just started in ministry, and I went to a pastor's conference, and, and, and the pastor, I remember him, he, he was from New Jersey, Italian Jersey, and just had that mafioso kind of way of speaking. And, um, and he, he, the title of his workshop was, He Who Loses His Temper Loses His Ministry. And as he began sharing from his own experience of dealing with his own bad temper, I sank more and more in the chair. Have you ever had a preaching where you just knew God was speaking to you and you're getting under the conviction and you're just, you know, sinking down? That's how I was doing. And I was like, God, he's speaking to me. That's me, God, you know. And after that, you know, I started to focus on that and pray on that. And God has changed me tremendously. I can't say I'm 100% of the way there, but you wouldn't have liked who I used to be. And God has changed me tremendously in that area. And those are just a couple of the areas, you know, that, that God has sanctified me uh, through his 
his word, but, but the word is powerful to change us. The Bible says the word is, is alive and it's active, amen? And it is powerful to change us. And that's, that's really the goal of Bible study, folks, is that our lives would be transformed, that we would be sanctified, and that we would become more like Christ. We're not studying the Bible just to, uh, you know, get a PhD in Bible, you know? We're studying the Bible so we can know God more and so our life can be changed, so our lives will be pleasing to him. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by all that we've spoken about tonight because remember, we have a divine helper, a teacher, the Holy Spirit, to help us to study the scripture and he will lead us into all truth. So pray and ask his help. But, but I wanna encourage everybody tonight to go beyond just reading you know, scripture memes and, and tweets on, online and, and, and even doing just five minute devotionals, but to take maybe one or two days a week where you're gonna go a little bit deeper spend a little bit more time in the Bible, and, and you're going to dig in and you're going to do some Bible study. So if, if, if that's your heart's desire, um, let's make a commitment to do that tonight. If that's your heart's desire, would you just stand to your feet and just talk to God and say, Lord, I, I, I want to do this. I want to dig deeper in your word, and, and I'm asking you to help me to do that and to help me by the Holy Spirit to understand it. Just take a moment and you talk to God from your own heart as we pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you tonight. We thank you for our divine helper, the Holy Spirit, our teacher, our spiritual mentor, who will lead us into all truth and take all the things that Jesus wants to say to us and make them known to us. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do this ourselves. Father, I pray, Lord God, that as we stand before you today, making this commitment to dig deeper into your word and to study your word, Lord God, Father, that you would help us, Lord, that, that there would be a drawing of your Holy Spirit to remind us of this commitment that we make and that as we launch into those studies, Lord God, that we would take the time to invite your Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us and to guide us, Lord God, and that we would hear your voice speaking to us, that you would give us supernatural insight and understanding, Lord God, that we may be able to understand what your word is saying and apply it to our lives, Lord. Father, I thank you for this wonderful response tonight, and I pray that you would help us to live out this commitment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you were blessed by this message, would you consider giving a gift to help support our ministry? You can text any amount to 954-516-1522. That's 954-516-1522. Thank you, and we hope you will join us again.